Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. This is Season 8, Episode 4. I'm very honored to have on our program today a very important person here in the Bay Area. Linda Shu is a physician, chef, and founder of the Teaching Kitchen for Patients. She believes that her best medicine is prevention, and her cooking classes showcase seasonal produce lavishly flavored with spices and fresh herbs. Her food writing has been published widely, and she's been interviewed frequently on television and in print. Dr. Shu has served as faculty at the University of California, San Francisco, and Stanford University, and serves on the San Francisco Marin Food Bank Board. She graduated from Brown University, San Francisco Cooking School, UCSF, and the Kitchen of Michelin starred restaurant Murad in San Francisco. She also has a certificate in plant-based nutrition from Cornell University. Her cookbook, Spice Botch Kitchen, Eat Well and Be Healthy, with globally inspired vegetable forward recipes, came out in 2021. You know, I think that many of us um, continue to say that we want to eat healthy, but, um, you know, there's so many temptations. And uh, I think that I, I still see, you know, in, in the news, so many reports of wastages of vegetables and, and fruits because they're not being eaten. And they're being issued for things like, you know, just fast food and crap food that we have nowadays. And one of the things, you know, as I age, is I think that we see more and more you know, if we're lucky enough to be healthy most of our lives, it's not really a concern. But the minute your health starts to take a dip, you see that you start to really feel that the adage, we are what we eat, is really a, a truth. And, um, you know, there are so many ways that we can go about improving our health. I think cooking and looking towards cooking and informing the choices that we have, you know, based on things like Dr. Shu's book to help us make the right choices for what we're going to eat and be conscious of what we're eating is really important. Looking at this, I think we can really turn towards the work of people like Dr. Shu and really start to make some good choices in our lives and what we cook and what we, what we feed ourselves and our families. I think that Dr. Shu is a very important guest and I hope you listen to this interview and take some of the things that she's saying to heart because you know she really has an important message here about how we can use our food as medicine. And, um, you know, everything we eat infects our, um, affects our bodies and, you know, kind of goes into our daily life. And I think it's something to think about and consider. Uh, I think you're going to really like this interview. Check out Dr. Shu's uh, website, Spicebox Kitchen. We have a link in the bio. And her book, Eat Well and Be Healthy with Globally Inspired, Vegetable Ford Recipes is out. Um, you can get it through most online vendors or also, you know, better um, bookstores as well. And uh, you can also probably get it at the local library. I know my library has it. Without further ado, I'm going to go to my interview with Dr. Shu, who I just enjoyed talking to. Um, not only was she very interesting and had a lot of very interesting things to say, she was just very fun and charming to talk to. So it was a joy. So here we go to my interview with Dr. Shu. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very honored to have on my podcast, Linda Shu, MD, who is a practicing physician in San Francisco, where she also founded a popular vegetable forward teaching kitchen to inspire people to cook for health. Her book, Spice Box Kitchen, Eat Well and Be Healthy with Globally Inspired Vegetable Forward Recipes came out in 2021 and is a Nautilus Book Award gold winner for food cooking and healthy eating 
and is a finalist for the IACP Cookbook Award for Health Nutrition. Linda, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Dean. Now, Linda, you mentioned in your bio that you began cooking when you took your first cooking class at seven. Where did cooking begin for you? I think cooking actually began with a love of eating, which I was born with. Um, I like to say I was born with a tasting spoon in my mouth. Um, okay. So I always, you know, hung out with my mom in the kitchen, just when she cooked mainly, you know, Taiwanese recipes. That's where my parents are from, Taiwan. Um, but I just really loved like tasting actually and eating and being part of the process. And um, the cooking lesson came as part of just a summer program that my babysitter at the time enrolled me in, um, which is actually about French language and culture. But of course, the culture in France is largely centered around cooking. So that was a big part of that as well, which is a bonus. What out of that um, program did you like cooking? What did you remember? What is your first memories of cooking? And what were, what are the things that you really enjoyed about it? Um, I truly still remember making quiche. Um, and I, I think what we made a quiche Lorraine, which, you know, at this point, I don't actually eat much, you know, meat. Um, and so I make more vegetable filled quiches now, but I actually use pretty much the same recipe, I think, as I learned when I was seven. And I remember we made, um, you know, a grated carrot salad as well. Um, and so maybe that was sort of a foreshadowing of all the vegetables that I would be making now. That sounds wonderful. I, uh, my first cookbook was a French inspired cookbook too. And I, I just really loved that food from an early age. Yeah. You studied anthropology and medicine at Brown University with field work in rural Sichuan, China, and in Singapore. You continued your medical training at the University of California, San Francisco, and learned about plant-based nutrition at Cornell University. Can you talk about us with your work in academia and what you enjoyed about working with anthropology specifically? Yeah, you know, I really think that my education at Brown was formative, you know, that combined with my early love of food and cooking. Um, and the reason I say that is that I was actually enrolled in an eight year medical program at Brown, which meant that I actually never applied to medical school. <laughs> I was accepted to that program from high school. And wow. um, I have the distinction of never having had to take the MCATs, which is a very big barrier for a lot of people. Those are the medical school entrance exams, which wow. are really tough. And so what that did for me is that it really liberated me. It took a lot of pressure off of me, even though I knew I wanted to go into medicine, that I didn't have to work, spend my whole undergraduate education focused on getting in, which is true for most pre-meds. Yeah. Um, and so basically I was given you know, the ability to study what I wanted and what I wanted and what I loved was learning about people and learning about other cultures. And so I was able to study abroad, which many pre-meds can't do. They just can't afford that time. Yeah. Um, and it gave me this perspective of truly like learning how to talk to people and learning how to learn from people. And I think that's been really important, both in how I've learned um, recipes from other cultures, how I've learned to teach other people about cooking, and also, of course, in my work as a doctor. What led you to your st to study plant-based nutrition at Cornell University? Um, so this is back in 2016, which is the year I took what I like to call my self-funded sabbatical from my previous medical practice, because at that point, I had already been teaching cooking classes to patients in the community for a few years, and I wanted to get kind of more, a deeper dive into both the nutrition part of it and in how to teach. So in 2016, I learned, I went to San Francisco Cooking School, um, where I did their professional course in culinary, culinary 
sorry, let me say that again. Um, in 2016, I went to San Francisco cooking school where I would, I took their culinary program. Um, I'd say that one more time. <laughs> no, I, we, we can edit anything. So don't worry about it. It's so interesting how there are so many words. Um, yeah. In 2016, I went to San Francisco cooking school uh, where I completed their professional culinary program. And around the same time, maybe a little before or after I did Cornell's um, online program in plant-based nutrition um, because I wanted to get that knowledge as well. Um, at that point, I had already started to focus not exclusively, but more so on vegetable cooking um, because through what I had begun to learn, um, that was not only something that was really crucial to most people's health and that I knew most people didn't eat enough fiber and enough vegetables. But from a culinary perspective, I also understood from my cooking class experiences um, as a teacher that a lot of people didn't who didn't like vegetables just really didn't know how to prepare them in delicious ways. You're in, you know, what you're saying for me is in line with many guests we've had. And we I've talked to many people on the show who work with programs to educate young people about vegetables and stuff like that. And just with all my own kids, most of my kids don't really know about most vegetables. It seems, I feel like they're more in tune with McNuggets and <laughs> things like that, right, French right. fries, you know? And like, I find that most of my kids didn't really ever know until they saw me cooking. They're like, what do you, what's that? And they didn't know what leeks were. Uh -huh. They didn't know what uh, kohlrabi was. They did. They've never seen beets before. Yeah. And as somebody who's a nutritionist, you must see the benefits of all these vegetables and how they affect us. Do you think that the American diet is really kind of bankrupt of these things? I think the modern, you know, what we call standard American diet, um, which if you look at the acronym is SAD, right? S-A-D. Yeah. Um, it truly is, but it doesn't have to be. I think that the origins of all cuisines, including the American diet, if you think of um, the American diet as a regional cuisine as well, most cuisines are vegetable based, but, you know, with industrialization and with convenience, a lot of that has been edited out. And the way that a lot of people unfortunately experience vegetables is in a way that truly is not delicious, right? They're, yeah. they're overcooked, they're bland, they don't have texture, they don't have flavor. And so people who may not come from families where vegetables are prized in their kind of whole natural form, um, can't see why vegetables should be part of their diet. Plus, you know, we're told that we can take supplements for everything. And so people might think, okay, if you think I need more fiber, you know, I can take Metamucil, but why would you want to do that? You know, I feel like to me, vegetables are the most delicious and varied of foods out there. And also the most interesting and challenging to cook actually to make taste uh, delicious to kind of coax out all of their delicious properties more interesting than animal proteins which you know you can learn to cook I feel like you can learn to cook meat well and then you know how to cook most types of meat well um, yeah, but with yeah. a vegetable each vegetable is different kitchen of Michelin starred restaurant Murad in San Francisco what was that like it was really a dream come true. Um, so that was part of my externship when I was in culinary school. And, um, you know, it, it was so interesting. There are so many parallels in culinary training to medical training. So first, um, when we were assigned to our externships, we weren't really allowed to say, I want to work in X restaurant. Right. We were encouraged to say, I like this kind of food. I want this sort of setting, whether it's fine dining, casual, et cetera. Um, and I like it because I want to learn about X. And so for me, I said, I would love to experience the chance to work in fine dining. I really enjoy fine dining and I probably won't work in a restaurant 
after this experience because um, I knew I was going to go back to my regular job. Um, and I already had a love of spices. And so um, that's what I put out there. And I was so excited um, when the match was made and that's where I got placed. And then um, when I got there, the other parallel to medical training was that there's a lot of stainless steel. There are a lot of uh, blades, you know, just like the the surgery suite. Um, and it was very disciplined and regimented in the same way um, that the surgical field is as well. So it gave me a lot of flashbacks to medical school. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I loved being part of a team. I loved that at the end of the shift, even though those were really long days, um, and I was older than most, you know, culinary students. So it was, it was physically quite hard for me, I have to say. Um, I love that you know, it was like a job well done. We had done a good job and it was done. That's not like my job as a primary care doctor where my job is never done. Yeah. Um, and um, I just really enjoyed that part of it. And plus, I love that I knew that I was part of the team that was making really fantastic food. So um, it gave me insight into another world, which I hadn't been part of. And I, I'm really so grateful for that. And now currently you're a practicing physician here in San Francisco, where you also founded a popular vegetable forward teaching kitchen to inspire people to cook for health. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, this goes back to before I even took that sabbatical. So in 2012, I went to a continuing medical education conference called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives, which is co-sponsored by the Harvard School of Public Health and the Culinary Institute of America in uh, St. Helena. And it's a course where they review all of the nutrition science. So that part comes from Harvard. And um, there are experiential kitchen sessions, both demos and live hands-on classes where you learn from the CIA chefs. And they also prepare all the food. So usually at most conventions, including medical conventions, or maybe especially at medical conventions, the food is terrible, both from a nutrition perspective and you know, possibly from a flavor perspective. Yeah. But this was, this was different. And it was truly, boom, a light bulb moment for me. Like literally I went there and after it, I realized like, this is what I wanna do. So less than a week after that conference, I taught my first cooking class to patients. And um, I'd never taught cooking to anyone before actually, but I found that it was natural for me and I really enjoyed the challenge. I really enjoyed that way of connecting with people, um, specifically with patients where there's often a barrier, you know, sort of between the, the doctor to patient with the white coat where people may not feel that comfortable um, sharing everything even though that's probably the most important time to do so. Um, when you're side by side cooking and eating together, all those barriers are taken away. And I found that that became a really good place for me to have more honest conversations with some of my patients and other people's patients as well. Um, and so that started me along this path where I then over the next few years really kind of learned how to teach people how to cook because it's very different to teach anything versus doing something, right? You can be a very good cook, but be a terrible teacher. And so that's what led me then to say, okay, I, I like this. I think it's really important for my patients. It's the missing link in the health for a lot of people is knowing how to cook at home in a better way for their health. And so, um, you know, after I got a few years of experience under my belt, and then I went to culinary school and kind of learned all the techniques and also from my excellent teachers there, um, how to teach people, I decided that it was time for me to kind of take it all the way and found a formal program for patients. And I was really lucky that when I pitched this idea to Kaiser in San Francisco, that my boss was very open to the idea and was willing to give it a go. 
Now, jumping off of that, you're the director of culinary medicine for Kaiser Permanente in San Francisco. Can you tell us about this work a little bit? Yeah, so I still mainly, for the most of my job, teach, uh, take care of patients in primary care, um, but I also teach classes uh, once or twice a month to patients as well as to staff and my physician colleagues on basically what I've been teaching since 2012, how to make home cooking delicious, how to make it simple enough to integrate into the same busy schedule that I have, as many people have, um, and how to really enjoy eating vegetables. Now, um... I wanted to ask you, just as a perspective of a non-medical person who is a patient of doctors, you must have a huge impact on people's lives, I think. What are some of the feedback you get from the people that you work with? Oh, yeah. No, it's it's amazing and almost embarrassing because I feel like what I do is, right, it's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery, right? To use those comparisons that people like to say when people are talking about something really simple. Cooking is not that complicated. And yet I truly and sincerely believe that it has the most impact when I teach patients how to cook than anything else I do as a doctor. And, you know, I didn't go to medical school to do this. Um, and yet I think I have the most power. So the feedback I get from patients is stuff like, you've changed my life. Yeah. I am finally able to lose the weight I've been trying to lose for all these years. I finally have my diabetes under control. I got to go off one of my blood pressure medications, you know, things like that. And it's like really heartfelt, you know, to be honest, most of the feedback that I think people give um, to doctors, probably specifically, mm -hmm. but also feedback in general tends to be negative feedback, right? People are moved yeah. to write something when they want to complain when something didn't go right or where they didn't feel like something went right. Yeah. Um, but to give a compliment, people often think, privately, oh, that was great. They may not actually take the time to share it, but I've gotten the most positive feedback since I started doing this. So of course that's very encouraging, but more importantly, I know that this is making a big impact on my patients and it, it, it drives me more than anything else that I do. Now in 2021, you wrote your book, Spicebox Kitchen. Now it's an award-winning book that um, won the Nautilus Book Award gold winner for food, cooking, and healthy kitchen eating and as a finalist for the IACP cookbook award for health and nutrition. That's a pretty big deal. And that's your first book. How did that feel when this came out? You won those awards. It was nominated for the other award. I mean, amazing. <laughs> Um, I, both of them mean a lot to me. So the Nautilus book awards, you know, their tagline is, um, better books for a better world. Um, and so it features books from a number of categories of which food is only one small category, um, that are really meant to, you know, improve people's lives and improve the environment, things like that. And so of course that has a lot of meaning to me. I'm, I'm really happy to contribute to that mission. Um, and the IACP awards for people who are not familiar, that's the, um, International Association of culinary professionals. I feel like all of our words today have a lot of syllables, but that's what the IACP is. Um, and the reason why this award um, means so much to me is, first of all, it's very prominent, but all the cookbooks in this um, award are tested many times by anonymous testers, anonymous judges, um, to see that the recipes work and that they actually deliver on their promise of tasting good and being what you expect them to be. And as you know, you probably know as someone who has cooked from cookbooks, unfortunately, often or 
many times cookbook recipes may not work or they might not be easy to follow. And so um, for me, as someone who teaches people to cook and wants people to understand that anybody can cook, that it does not have to be difficult, that meant really, uh, that means a lot to me that my recipes work, which I, I knew that they did because I <laughs> that I tested them. They've been tested by other people m- multiple times. Um, but that sort of, you know, confirmation from people who have a lot of expertise in this means truly a lot to me. Also by obviously getting um, the name of the cookbook out there more into the world, I'm really hoping to help more people improve their health and their lives by hopefully picking up a copy of the cookbook and cooking from it. You have some, uh, when I looked on your uh, reviews page on Amazon, I was moved both by just the acclaim you have from your peers that are, that are included in that and some really very profound words about the cookbook. And also a lot of the people that purchased the book were moved to write really positive glowing reviews about how it changed their life. Was this gratifying for you as an author to see all this, you know, positive press about your book? Oh, of course. (laughs) Now, of course, this is dangerous too. You know, I was raised in a culture where you're supposed to be completely humble and to even talk about all of this as in my success, I'm not really supposed to, I'm not really encouraged to do. I also know just as a, you know, as an adult, that it's dangerous to kind of bask in the glory of other people's words, right? It's fragile, it's temporary, and um, I think can distract you from your mission. But All of that said, of course, it's nice to see nice words and um, especially the feedback from people saying that it's helped them. Again, that's that's truly been my mission, right? That's my work as a doctor. I I don't really, um, I don't know that I've really reflected on myself as, you know, what is my character? What is my mission as a person? But um, inevitably, when I talk about my work with other people, people close to me say that, you know, you just love helping people. You've always done that in no matter what you do. You know, I'm a mother as well. I have two daughters. Like you, you take care of people. And I almost like push back at that, like, that's not really what I'm out here to do. You know, I, I, I enjoy doing this. I, I happen to also be kind of good at what I do. They're like, no, you you take care of people. So I guess that's the truth, right? And so it does gratify me to say see that people who are not even my patients um, can benefit from the lessons that I try to impart through my recipes. And I think, you know, even from uh, one of the most significant things I a feedback that I got was from my literary agent whose husband actually um, cooked for, I don't know, 30 days, maybe two months exclusively for my cookbook. And this is like long after it came out and improved his cholesterol by some huge percentage. And I thought, oh, come on, it's not that powerful, but but maybe it is. And, you know, just getting that kind of feedback when I didn't need it. It's not like I needed my literary agent. She already, already bought into me. I, you know, I didn't need proof from her or her husband that my book was good. I knew that she she helped me shape it, that so she believed in it. But I love hearing those stories. It means so much to me. And of course, it's not that it's my my cookbook and the recipes per se that are making this change. It's facilitating the change in people's lives for people who are ready and want to make that change and are just looking for a way to implement it easily and deliciously. You put a lot of good traditional recipes in here, but you kind of gave them the twist of being more uh, vegetable forward. And also you had a lot of creative use of spices with this. What was the writing process like in the recipe testing process like for you when you wrote this book? 
Oh, yeah. So, you know, my my premise is tr that truly all cultures, all cuisines were primarily more vegetable forward or mainly vegetable forward than they are now yeah. um, for a variety of reasons. You know, pre-industrialization, poverty, all of those things where plant based food has always been cheaper and it has been the staple for many people, whereas meat has often been a luxury. And so for me, it just made sense. I'm like, this is actually probably more traditional. I don't know, like, all of these are my own twists. These are this is none of these are, you know, if we're going to use that dangerous word in cookbook uh, language of authentic, none of these are, you know, as they were designed, but they're my take on things based upon my palate, and just how I like food to taste. And so um, that adjustment of recipes to be more vegetable forward, I think just was logical for me, not very hard. It might've simply been, okay, if I take out the meat, how do I still make this taste like what it what it's supposed to be like? And so that's where the spices came in. Because if you think about it, the flavors of most dishes are not the meat. The meat might be an essential kind of under, you know, back note except for like a steak, a steak is a steak. And you, even though I put a recipe for cauliflower steak in that, it is not a steak, right? <laughs> no, no yes. steak lover is going to say, oh yeah, this is exactly <laughs> the same thing as a steak. Yeah. But let's take that example. And that recipe, smoked paprika is my secret ingredient for making vegetables taste meatier, you know, almost like bacon, because yeah. it is that smoke. Um, and so it's little things like that, thinking about what is the flavor that is not meat that makes us taste like a certain dish? How do we then substitute using a spice or some other ingredient to make it taste that way? So another example might be um, seafood. Um, so you want something to taste like seafood or like fish, even though the recipe does include um, some fish and other seafood-based recipes. Um, if you're someone who wants to eat completely plant-based, then you can sometimes substitute kelp or kelp powder, right? So see vegetables take on that brininess, that umami um, that we are looking for in seafood. Again, it's not going to taste just like fish or like shellfish, but it will give you that idea. So that is my very simple process, distilling it to actually the flavor and using spices and other ingredients from the plant world that can kind of recreate that flavor. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Now, your book has recipes um, that can help people, you know, address issues like inflammation and diabetes. And you, I think I've heard you quoted saying that you like to think about cooking as preventative medicine. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? Oh, yeah. So, you know, as my, my license as a doctor allows me to write for any prescription for any medication all the time. And I don't like to. I, you know, another way to look at this is if you look at prevention as the best medicine just just that line itself yeah. i i would do best if i put myself out of business meaning that my patients didn't need to see me anymore because they were so healthy they didn't need my prescriptions and so how do we get there well food is a very big part of that people eat usually three times a day and so each time they're making that decision of what do i put in my mouth it has a huge impact on on what's going to happen to their health whether you're eating completely plant-based whether you're an omnivore whatever you're doing each time you put something in your mouth you're making a decision that impacts your health. And 
And so that's why I think what I do is so powerful. That, of course, has to be put into the context of you also do need to, you know, incorporate movement and exercise. You should moderate your, your stress. You need to sleep more. I need to sleep more. That's my weakness. Um, you know, all those things are really important to do. But food, because it's such a frequent part of choices that we make in our daily lives, um, truly has a big impact. And in terms of why prevention is the best medicine, preventing disease is uh, much easier than treating disease. Once certain things have gotten, you know, out of the gate, it's it's actually really hard to get under control, not impossible. But if I can start early with someone, either before they have an illness, or when they're in their earlier stages of a chronic illness, um, I can help a lot more. Yeah, spices are important in your cookbook. And as you mentioned with uh, your secret ingredient, uh, smoked paprika, can we talk about um, how um, spices were integral to this cookbook and, and your, also your cooking? Yeah, you know, initially when I um, started my proposal for this cookbook, I didn't know that I'd be focusing entirely on spices. It was more that it was going to be kind of an international cookbook. And then it became, you know, sort of like, how do I get a theme in this cookbook? And when I looked at it kind of from far away, I'm like, oh, it's actually really about what are the flavors in all these different regions that you know, I love the food from and, um, you know, what actually also might be a way to impart some health benefit aside from those ingredients. And it was spices. So spices were the first medicines before we had pharmaceuticals. A lot of, you know, pharmaceuticals are actually derived from spices and other plants. Um, and, you know, more important than anything, they taste good. So it's kind of a win-win. It's a way of bringing food from many different cultures very inexpensively and simply into people's kitchens. Um, and it, you know, that, that goes back to the traveler and the anthropologist in me. Um, and they also have health benefits. Now, um, Hatchet Publishing Group did a really great job with the cookbook. It had a really great visual look to it. How did it how did it feel for you when you got to open it for the first time and look at the first galley proofs? Oh, it was amazing. Um, uh, it was amazing. And, um, you know, I, I really want to give a shout out to my photography team as well, because they did a fantastic job with me. And this was the first book for all three of us. Um, so my photographers, oh, wow. yeah, my first, I know, it's amazing, right? You would not know that. No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great for people that haven't seen it yet. And you will, um, it's a really beautiful book. It looks really great. It, it, everything really pops in it. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh yeah. So Michelle came in is my photographer and she was amazing. I, I feel like when you look at her photos, you they're alive, right? It's like, you can see like the movement behind them. You can almost see, like smell the aromas from her photos. Um, when I first saw her photography website, I knew she was the one. Um, and I was introduced to her by the food stylist who worked with me, Haley Hazel, who was actually one of my culinary school classmates. So Haley's um, background actually was as a graphic designer um, before she went to culinary school. And then she became a food stylist and food photographer, actually mainly a food stylist. And um, I knew from that work, as well as um, having worked alongside her in culinary school, that we would we worked in a similar way and that we would get along really well, which was really crucial to the process of you know, doing all, all the photos, the photo shoot for this project. And so all that is to say that uh, Michelle and Haley are amazing. And I hope that other people will look at that and, and hire them because they're fantastic. Um, and yeah, seeing the, the galley for the first time, you know, it was just like, maybe it's like equivalent to seeing the ultrasound of your baby when you're pregnant. It's like, 
it's really there. It's really real. And oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. It's even better than I ever dared dream. Yeah, it's just they they did such a good job. I really like their cookbooks anyway, but the Hatchet did her just amazing job on that. It was all around just I really like the title too, because I when you look at the cover, there's something that arrests your attention and kind of grabs you. And from the cover to the interior and looking at the recipes, the way it's written, and looking at the photographs, it just it's a winning cookbook all the way around. Thank you so much. Now, um, can we talk about some of your influences as a food writer and cookbook author? Who are some of the people that you like to read, some of the cookbooks that you have in your shelf? I am so sad that I never got to meet Anthony Bourdain. So yeah. I own everything he's written and I you know, reread everything he's written and I watch all of his shows over and over. And it's really such a tragedy that he's no longer with us. I think, you know, despite the fact that he's so different from me, you know, he's this tall white man who's kind of rough, but probably inside actually quite similar to me, sensitive and quiet. Um, he He's an explorer and he loved a lot of the same, you know, I, I would have loved to have traveled with him, you know, beyond even yeah. having, I wish I had met him. I wish I could have traveled with him. I think we'd have been great travel companions. Um, I, he's probably my number one. Um, and then, you know, uh, for people who are still with us, I definitely have to give a shout out to Francis Lamb, whose writing is beautiful and lyrical. And I'm really looking forward to his book that's coming out this year or next year. Um, he's important, not just because I love his writing. He's truly, you know, one of my favorite food writers. Um, I got into my recipe development when he, for one year, ran something called the Salon Kitchen Challenge on Salon.com, which was a weekly recipe development slash food writing contest that was on a different theme every week that was announced maybe three days before the deadline and the prize was just you know if you're selected you're published on salon.com there's no other prize beyond that nice. um, but it was so much fun and that's truly how I got into doing this before that I had never actually written about food I had never written a recipe it, it just seemed like something I it wasn't something I had thought about doing and then I did, and I got a lot of practice because I, along with one other person, entered every single week for the whole year. Nice. Very cool. <laughs> Which tells you a lot about me that may or may not be flattering, but I really enjoyed that. And Francis also, importantly, um, helped me with this cookbook because I had approached him um, if he wanted to work with me on a cookbook, and he politely declined. <laughs> He rejected me, but he um, introduced me to my literary agent who was uh, formerly an editor who had worked in the same uh, with the same publisher as he had. Um, she'd actually never worked on a cookbook before, but he knew her as an editor and had, as someone who had worked on health books. And without that introduction, I, I couldn't have done this. You really do need a literary agent these days. And so Francis is crucial for those ways. Um, and then um, finally, with two other writers that I really like locally, um, I really enjoy Soleil Ho from oh, yeah. um, the San Francisco Chronicle um, because they write about food in a way that no one else writes about food, you know, with a critical eye that brings in everything in ways that might seem at first like they're not relevant, but they are. And oh, you yeah. know, the reason for that is that it's not food writing. It's actually writing critically about the world and life and food in the same way that anyone who loves food and writes about food or loves cooking food, you understand that food is just a, a means of communication. It's my favorite way of connecting with people. And I think that Soleil sees food in the same way. So I, I really enjoy reading her very interesting take on food. Um, so yeah, those are probably three of my favorites. Now, 
we've had the pandemic in the past couple of years and it's been really hard for many people to get out and go to restaurants mm. around the Bay Area. And unfortunately we've seen the damage that's done to the restaurant culture here in the Bay Area. When you can get out and go to restaurants, where do you like to go to? What are some of your favorite places that you wanna give a shout out to? Yeah, you know, it's it's so sad, right? It's so sad, yeah. it's still a struggle for so many restaurants and um, several of my favorites, and I'm sure yours as well, did close down and it's like, oh, can you please come back? Yeah. Um, so, but there are still some, and I, I like to think about this because of course people ask me this question all the time Yeah. and I find it so hard to answer, but I'll name a few. Um, one of my favorite standbys is Foreign Cinema in the Mission. Oh. Uh, have you been there? No, That's, oh, uh, that sounds exciting. I, it's just fantastic. Yeah, look at, look up Foreign Cinema. Um, they've been around for actually a couple of decades um, and I, I love their take on California cuisine as well as their ambiance. Um, I like for, and so then I thought, okay, maybe I should go by categories. People of course want to ask me about Chinese food. And to be honest, I actually don't love a lot of Chinese restaurants. I think um, that's the, you know, Chinese and Taiwanese food is the food of my upbringing, my culture. So I have a very specific take on what I like, um, but I really like China Live. Um, and as someone who has lived and worked in China, um, spent a lot of time in Taiwan and in Singapore, I really do think I know a lot about many types of Chinese food. I like China Live in Chinatown. Oh, wow. um, I I love Murad. Um, so of course that's from my experience there and my affection for the chef Murad. Um, and for just for the food is fantastic. Um, also a very beautiful place for a special occasion dining. Um, I love Mr. Benjamin for kind of a contemporary French bistro. I like Catonia for Italian food, um, Nopolito for a fresh take on Mexican food, and then a little bit on the outskirts of the Bay Area in St. Helena, I love Charter Oak. That's my actual most recent new addition to places I love is Charter oh, Oak. Oh, I want to check that out. I love St. Helena. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. So I want to ask you, um, what is the best advice to give to people who are just thinking about eating healthier and want to eat healthy, but don't really know where to begin, which I think is a lot of Americans, unfortunately. Yeah. I like to say, start with a small step, you know, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, you know, in, when we talk about behavior change with people, uh, the principle is that you're supposed to emphasize the positive and not talk about what you cut out. But I, I, I agree with the emphasizing the positive, but I think that there's always something to cut out from how I eat for how, how anybody eats. So first think about things that, you know, are not the best thing to have in your daily diet and either cut them out entirely. If that's something that you don't really care about so much or cut it down and then replace it with the good stuff. So what is the good stuff? Vegetables. I feel like as long as you add more vegetables, first of all, they have a lot of fiber. You're going to get fuller from them. You won't actually have room for the stuff that may not be as great for your health, whether that is meat, whether that is saturated fat in some other form, whether that's sugar. Um, and then on that note, trying to go back to kind of more whole foods, foods that are more like uh, they exist in nature, because by doing that, you're going to automatically cut out the stuff that isn't so great for you. And you will also um, be able to taste actually what these foods are supposed to taste like. And so, you know, cooking your vegetables and um, cooking your meat, uh, reducing your reliance on pre-prepared foods in whatever form. And then in terms of carbohydrates, um, you know, exploring whole grains, whole grains, there's such a wide variety. They have such interesting flavors and textures. And that by doing that, you'll be cutting out on refined 
grains, which essentially are sugar. And we know that that's another thing that um, isn't so great for people. So again, I, I, I never tell people like, do a complete, you know, three, six, uh, 180 and cut out all these bad things and, you know, forget how you used to eat. You're starting from scratch today. It's like, no, think about what you like to eat and make it a little bit better by adding more vegetables and converting to whole grains. That's a good start. I love all that. That's wonderful. Um, so I want to ask you one last question. What's next for you? Okay, this is where I'm going to manifest what I would like. And for any listener out there, in case you're looking for me, <laughs> I would like to have another cookbook. So we'll see how that goes. But um, thinking about um, Spicebox Kitchen as a platform and what else I could do with that, um, I... I would love to have a Netflix series. So I would love to have a show that is kind of like salt, fat, acid, heat, heat, salt, fat, acid, heat. Let's say that again. Yeah. I would like to have a Netflix series like salt, fat, acid, heat. Um, but from my perspective, which is pretty unique as a doctor and professionally trained chef and cook, cookbook author who teaches people how to cook, to travel to places where there are these great uh, traditions of delicious, healthy diets and interview those people and talk about why this way of eating, whether it's in the Mediterranean, whether it is, you know, Okinawa, these places that are the blue zones um, and other parts of the world. Talk about what makes these cuisines good for people and then get into the cooking of how do we make this both authentic and delicious. So um, some sort of TV show would be something I'd really love to do, like truly. And then- um, I'm kind of surprised they haven't already talked to you about this. It just seems like a- <laughs> This seems like a no brainer. Like this would be great. I would watch this in a heartbeat. If I was kind of oh. scrolling through Netflix and I saw this, I'd be like, yeah, I'll watch this. This sounds great. All right. Thank you for your vote of confidence. Yeah. So that's, that's a manifest there. So that I think would be great to do. Um, I, I dabble with the idea of like getting my own food out there in its cooked form to people. But I think a restaurant would be too hard for me. Um, but maybe that would make in, involve um, preparing some spice blends or maybe some condiments and mm. getting those out there. These are all things that sound crazy to me, though. But, you know, the idea of going to culinary school and writing cookbook would have been crazy to me before as well. So these are some of I'm just going to limit it to that. These are some of the ideas that I would like to take next steps on. I love all these things. I wish you success in all these things. Also, so I can I can watch them and buy them. So I, I wish you success for my sake as well. <laughs> thank you so much. Linda, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. And I'm going to put a link to the book, Spice Box Kitchen, in the bio so people can look at it and purchase it. Great. And I might just want to mention my social media so people can follow me as well if they're interested. Um, so I'm at Spicebox Travels um, on Twitter and Instagram. And on Facebook, I'm at uh, the Doctor's Spicebox. And I'll put links to all that in the bio as well. So when you're looking for that, you can just go to the bio and link and click all the links. Thank you so much, Dean. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Linda, it's been a pleasure talking to you as well. Thank you. That was my conversation with Dr. Linda Shu of Spicebox Kitchen. You can go to the links in the bio to find information on her cookbook and her website. Um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I just really loved getting to talk to Dr. Shu and I hope to have her again on the program. Next week on the program, we're gonna be having multifaceted author, Carolyn Wright, who is a cookbook author, former food television producer, and veteran of uh, shows like Martha Stewart Living and more. Her recipes and articles appear regularly online and in national lifestyle publications, including Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, Food Network, Every Day with Rachel Ray, The Kitchen, and Food 52. 
And she has many uh, cookbooks such as Soup Club and One, Two, Three, Four Cake and Cookie Truck. So she's a great author. I really had a great time talking with her and I look forward to having you listen to that conversation. I hope you all have a really great week. If you choose to share um, episodes of my podcast with others on social media, I would really appreciate that. We also have a uh, little link in the bio where you can leave a tip for um, buy me a cup of coffee or a pint. It's up to you. Um, Also, we want to give a big shout out and thank you to um, Asian Man Records for letting us use the song Talk About Love in our intro and outro. You can go to the link in the bio to Asian Man Records and look up bands such as um, Kitty Cat Fan Club, whose our intro and outro song is by, or also other bands that they host on the website. And you look up other bands' information, and you could buy T-shirts and uh, discs and LPs and uh, bumper stickers on that website. So we're very uh, appreciative to them as well. Hope you all have a really great week, and keep on cooking. I've been getting.